Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President for Population Health. And I have Maria Alexander, who's uh, one of our newer members on the team, uh, works in government channels. Um, and uh, Maria comes to us with a varied background, but I'll let her introduce yourself. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So Maria, tell us a little bit about what you do here and, and how you how you got here. Sure. So I am the uh, Senior Director for Clinical Operations and Government Channels, uh, which is, I think, sort of a funny name. People often look at me and quizzically when I uh, say that title. But um, Government Channels really uh, just means that I focus on um, our arrangements with government payers, so on, primarily on the Medicare and Medicaid side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really I focus a lot on the um, Medicare fee-for-service arrangements, which is our uh, Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs, uh, and then I also do some work with uh, Medicaid health homes and um, some other uh, Medicare and Medicaid-related work mm-hmm. uh, here at Mount Sinai. Um, and I, uh, as you said, I'm a newer member of the team. I just started uh, about six months ago, and um, I came here from uh, from CMS, from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, so most of my experience in healthcare has been on the sort of payer policy regulatory side right. of things. Um, I started there in uh, 2011 and um, uh, really actually been working in education policy um, but got an opportunity to to move into healthcare policy and thought I'll give this a try and sure. <laughs> got kind of hooked so I've stayed <laughs> um, and started uh, it's complex there. I've heard <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, nobody knew <laughs> nobody knew um, but started there, yeah, in 2011 uh, at the CMS Innovation Center, which was a new office at the uh-huh. time that was created by the Affordable Care Act. Um, sort of as sometimes people describe it as the research and development arm of, mm-hmm. of CMS. So we ran pilot programs um, to try to reduce cost and improve quality. Right. Um, and when I started there, we were just starting to develop the Pioneer ACO model. Okay. Um, so one of the early... Um, accountable care organization models out of um, out of Medicare, and most of my time there, I focused on ACOs, but um, moved around a little bit. So, also worked on some some programs related to dual eligibles, so mm-hmm. people out of Medicare and Medicaid, um, and did some work on um, a program called the Value Modifier Program, which was one of the precursors to um, the Macro MIPS okay. uh, gotcha. program that. Everybody yep. knows and yep. doesn't love today. Um, and uh, in the middle there, I actually left CMS and worked for a provider organization in Boston. So worked for an ACO there and uh, went back to the, the government side. And then now I'm back to the provider side here. So yeah. uh, that's that's how I ended up here. I remember talking with you as you were uh, being recruited for this role. And tell me a little bit about why the move to, from the, to back to the provider side. Yeah, I think... Um, there are a lot of things I really enjoyed about being on the the policy and mm-hmm. and regulatory side, um, but I think um, being on the policy side or or on the payer side, I think for the most part too, uh, you're really a more more of a step removed from from patient care. Yeah. Um, I'm not a clinician and um, don't have plans to you know, go back to you still can um, <laughs> go back to medical school. <laughs> well, you know, you never know, but. Um, uh, I think being at a, a provider organization, you even if you're not doing direct patient care, it does feel closer to the point of care, and, mm-hmm. and that um, uh, felt like a, a perspective that I wanted to, to yeah. get closer to. Yeah. Um, so that was that was one of the main reasons. Um, 
and and I think you know it was appealing to me to work work in an organization that was participating in some of the programs that I'd worked on on the yeah, policy side and, sure. and sort of see like you know how that's actually playing out what what works and you know sure. what doesn't work so yeah um, you have such a unique perspective that we don't often get to hear. You, you when when you're working on you you were you were working on some of these early programs. Tell me about like, what was the general vibe like? What you know the the intent? I mean, obviously we are we're all fully aware of you know pros and cons of these programs and actually executing on them. But can you speak a little bit about the atmosphere and what was happening? What were the overall goals? Because it was, it was pretty transformative at the time. I mean, yeah. Um, so. As I mentioned, I was working on the Pioneer ACO model, which was um, really being developed around the same time as the Medicare Shared Savings mm-hmm. Program. So the, the Medicare Shared Savings Program was um, was mandated by law. So the Affordable Care Act actually described the Shared Savings Program. Right. Um, typically, you know, sort of in any law that that Congress passes, there's still quite a bit to be worked out by you know agencies like like CMS to figure out the details, but there were a lot of pieces of that that were laid out, whereas the Pioneer ACO model was um, uh, something that that we were developing in tandem with that to sort of test some variations on the shared right. savings program. Um, I think overall with the ACO programs, the goal was really to um, think about ways to uh, help control costs and improve quality in Medicare fee-for-service. So, um, you know, at the most basic level, just how do we change incentives so that um, providers and, you know, health systems uh, have a, an incentive to, to talk to each other about a patient's care and to um, not just think about the service they're providing, but think about care um, more holistically for, for the patients that they serve. Um, there are a bunch of different ways that, that we were trying to do that. So there were bundled payments, there were, sure. um, you know, different different variations on that. But the idea with an ACO was looking at the data and seeing that for um, fee-for-service patients in Medicare, they um, their care was really fragmented. They saw a lot mm-hmm. of different providers, but also identifying that there were, typically, obviously, it varies by patient, but there were, even when they were seeing a lot of providers, there was usually, you know, a practice or a, or a provider that they um, saw more than others. And so... That was sort of one of the starting theories was that if we attribute them to to that provider or to that um, group of providers and say you're now accountable for yeah. for managing this care, that right. we would see better coordination and we would see, um, you know, unnecessary care like repeat, um, you know, imaging visits or yeah. um, hospitalizations that come from man- unmanaged conditions and things like that go down. Um, we definitely weren't sure if it was going to work. That was that's sort of mm-hmm. the idea with all the innovation center models is yep. that we're we're testing things and right. you tweak them along the way. Um, but those were that was sort of the basic concept. And then with Pioneer specifically, it was as I mentioned to test some alternatives um, to the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So it was a more aggressive risk track. It was intentionally designed for organizations that were um, a little further along. A little further along, yeah. yeah, and and had more experience with that, um, and to see if we could. Um, you know, see more savings um, by by having that um, more aggressive downside risk in place. But there were also sort of smaller, like wonkier details of the of the program that we were testing out. So we tested prospective attribution, where you let the ACO sure. know who the, the list of patients is beforehand versus yeah. after. And we, um, you know, tested, um, you know, we let the ACOs, you know, 
this is really, you know, on the more detailed level, but I think was uh, for us at the time felt interesting to test whether um, to give the option for ACOs to list specific physicians that they would have in the ACO as opposed okay. to saying everybody that bills under this tax identification number has to be. In. Oh, I see. The idea there being that if you're taking on risk, you might want to do that in a in a more controlled with a smaller group to start with and, right. and knowing that some health systems have you know all of their providers under the same, the same tin, tin. You, you wouldn't have been able to do that so yeah tested out some things like that later tested things like a um a waiver of the three-day stay um in a hospital before you can go to a sniff and, yeah. and some things like that that have now been translated into right some program. of these things have have moved on yeah the, you know is there was there some point of evaluating hey gosh you know this worked pretty well. I mean, that we accomplished some things. I mean, obviously, there, I'm sure oh, there's always room for improvement. The program has changed over the years. Obviously, Pioneer doesn't exist anymore, but certainly the th- learnings have, have evolved. Um, but was there a point where you said, gosh, you know, it, it's working, you know, um, or not, not yet? Yes, I think um, I would give sort of two answers to that. So one is that the the statute that created the Innovation Center actually mandates that we evaluated programs. This doesn't exist on the shared savings program side, right. but for Pioneer, it had to be evaluated. And there's a um, a process then where the um, the office of the actuary at CMS can certify a program as you know, saying that it would, if expanded, it would save money. And um, right. the Pioneer ACO model was actually the first program to get that certification. Um, not yeah. many have that. So, so from sort of the actuary's perspective, um, it did you know it did save money. Um, and so that was, you know, exciting. And, and in that way, you would say, sure, it works. But there's obviously a lot of details under that. Um, and I think things that we found worked and things we found didn't work that well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because we were testing it with intentionally with organizations that were um, more yeah. experienced in this way, we sort of knew from the beginning there's some selection bias there. Yeah. Right. So right. I, I wouldn't say that it's like a yes or no do ACOs work. I think that I would say that they can work, and um, you know what seems more interesting and harder to answer is what makes the ones that work work, work. well, yeah. and how do you then right. um, you know spread that to to others so that yeah. it can work you know more broadly. And I I want to come back to that because I obviously with a lot of the changes and we're you know still waiting on the current role, I, I, there is that role of engaging those that are not on that. Uh, more progressive end of the continuum mm-hmm. and, and the successor in what's at risk. And so I'd like to come back to that point. But then, so leaving the policy side and CMS and then coming to your experiences on the delivery side, were there surprises about trying to execute on this? Sure, definitely. <laughs> um, I think uh, when I when I first left CMS and, and worked for, for another ACO, um, I think lots of surprises, probably less so this time just because I'd done it yeah, once and sure. gone back. Right. Um, but every organization is different. And so that's been a really good experience, too, to to see that the the things that didn't make sense, you know, at, at the, um, the other ASA I worked for maybe aren't sticking points here, but there's other things that are. And it really mm-hmm. gives you uh, that reminder of how different different healthcare organizations can be. Um, I think some of the things were just on, you know, I think, when you're in any organization, especially a large organization, you're you sort of learn the how complicated it is to get decisions made or to get right. you know things approved or to to make things happen. But um, you're always much more aware, I think, of the 
the challenges or the complexities of the organization you work for and you sort of forget about it in other places. So even little yeah. things like, you know, we would make a policy change in in the pioneer model and, um, you know, send out an amendment or something to the agreement and, you know, give people two weeks to make a, you know, decision about, you know, whether they want to opt for this option or that option. And um, it had taken us months on our side to get approval to offer that option. But we would, I think, sometimes forget about like, oh, right, these organizations also have boards and, yeah. you know, CEOs and, right. you know, They're financial analysts different. that need to like weigh <laughs> right. in on things. And, right. and um, when, you, know, you know that, but you don't, you don't sort of feel it the same way. And so being on the other side of that gave me a better appreciation for like, how different, you know, different requirements might be burdensome, how they mm. might be, um, you know, how we could sort of give people sufficient time, but also how we could structure things in a way that would better align with their um, their organizational structure. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, things like that, I think, um, become more clear when you're, when you're trying to get things yeah. done in another organization. Yeah. The, the, you know, the physicians that we often, you know, talk with in, in the networks and um, always think about CMS as sort of this black box thing out there and the things being done to them. Um, can you help uh, those that might be listening there are physicians or other for more frontline folks on the delivery side? What sort of input is, uh, can you talk a little bit about the process for, hey, we're going to start ACOs. Obviously, it's a multi-year, very thought out process, but um, what sort of input happens from the front lines as in the design piece? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, so I think there's it. It can vary depending on the the program and mm-hmm. um, whether it's going to through a regulatory rulemaking process versus whether it's sort of happening more um, informally. But I think in all of those cases, um, you know, I think it really can feel like this when you're not, um, you know when you're not working at CMS, that it feels yeah. like they aren't seeking input. I think we always felt like we were getting lots of, you know, lots of input, or, or maybe I should say we were getting as much input as was allowed. So there are also restrictions sometimes around oh, the conversation, like what you can share that's not yeah. publicly right. you know, shareable. And I think there's ways that, um, you know, that when I was on the policy side that we would try to um, still get input in in appropriate, allowable ways through requests for information. The mm-hmm. rulemaking process has sort of a formal comment, you know, mm-hmm. um, process and that sort of thing. Um, we had more flexibility on the Innovation Center side to to evolve those programs as they were going because we didn't have to go through an annual rulemaking mm-hmm. process to make a change. Um, so I think the participants in those um, Innovation Center programs probably um, feel like there was more opportunity to you know, change things, although I'm sure there have still been frustrations around that. Um, I think the other thing I'll say is that there are there are physicians that practice and clinicians that practice that work at CMS. So it's not um, FYI. um, (laughs) That was uh, and and, you know, their their input obviously is is, you know, important. Um, You know, I think it's definitely an area that I feel like always felt like we wanted to do better in mm-hmm. so so I think it's a fair criticism but um, uh, the the other thing I'll say about that is that I think the image especially when you're putting out a regulation or something is that like by putting out that regulation there's some level of confidence of like this is absolutely the right way to go and I would say my experience was much more that these are really hard 
questions to solve and there are a bunch of different ways to do it and there's trade-offs in whatever decision you're making and we often really struggled with those with those decisions and and the different stakeholders there's you know clinical reasons to do things but there's also you know really important fraud and abuse protections that that have to be in place and how you where you decide to make that policy you know we often weren't sure. We did the best we could, and then you hope you get input that helps you improve it. You hope you learn something that helps improve it. So yeah. um, that's sort of the biggest thing is that I always think like we we weren't sure, you know. We and yeah. we would love feedback on on you know the better way to do it. I think I always try to encourage people when they're commenting on a regulation or um, giving any kind of feedback that you suggest the alternative that you think would be better. Because just saying you don't like the current thing, often we were sitting there saying, yeah, we don't we don't think it's great either, but we didn't come up with anything better. So tell right. us what the better thing is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's it's humans trying to right, trying say, to do something. And, it's it's refreshing and we don't to hear that. Figure the, it all out. Right. <laughs> yeah. the, the humanity that's on the other side. I think yeah. that's probably the biggest piece of context that people don't appreciate. Is yeah. yeah. And these are complex problems. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are sometimes unintended consequences of any decision. That, that's yeah. why the program changes every year, right? Yeah. Um, on the, I, I'm I'm curious when you look now, being at Sinai now for a few months, and you see where, um, where you want us to go on because government payers still constitute a massive percentage of our patients. I mean, a lot of our patients depend on that, whether they're elderly and on Medicare whether they're poor and disabled and on Medicaid or both, um, in all the permutations, health home and all the other particular things about New York, um, where do you where do you see that going? Do you think that will likely increase? And how do we respond? Like, what, how do you see sort of the vision for how we evolve to kind of work on these programs? Yeah, I think um, in some ways it's not any different than any other payer or yeah. any you know the work that we're trying to do to improve care for right. for all the populations that we serve so i think um in some ways that's that's the goal is to have it not feel yeah, different right to have it just feel like whatever the you know payer or payment arrangement <laughs> you know we we provide high quality service and we do it efficiently and um you know, when patients have a good experience and providers have a good experience in that. So that's sort of, you know, the broader thing, I think, in terms of the specifics of, um, you know, where our Medicare contracts or mm-hmm. Medicaid contracts might go. I think, um, you know, I think there's on the on the Medicare ACO side, there's a push toward um, toward taking on more risk. Um, that's, you know, sort of been the, yeah. the big conversation yeah. recently. That's a lot of what was in the proposed rule um, that we're now waiting, waiting on a final rule for. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of my job is sort of thinking about how to get us into the right arrangement that fits best with you, where our strengths are and um, what our market is like and that sort of thing. But um, I think the, the most basic or the most important, you know, core piece of that is are we able to, um, you know, effectively implement care management strategies and are we able to, you know, meet the needs of patients and um, coordinate their care better and, and all that. So I think it sort of, it always still comes back to that. And then hopefully the pieces of figuring out the right contract to be in or or that sort of thing, um, at least, you know, for, for providers feel like a thing they don't have to pay that much attention to, right? right. We want them to pay attention to, to 
caring for patients and to, you know, thinking about the best, you know, the most appropriate care. But um, the the hope is that they're maybe aware that they're in an ACO, but beyond (laughs) that, don't have to worry about like the exact, you know, uh, structure of that. But where all the all the sort of messaging and incentives are aligned, but but yeah. in a seam- more seamless way. Yeah, no, it, it makes a ton of sense. You, you mentioned um, as we're uh, closing here a little bit. I, I wanted to come back to a point you made earlier about the Pioneer program and, and how it really was geared more towards the the higher performing, at least in the context of value, those higher performing systems that were um, uh, their stage of readiness was certainly much greater than maybe the mainstream. And I think part of the, at, at least in both of our involvements, I think you know nationally in terms of ACOs and um, the movement has grown, and that's a we all I think all sort of felt like that was a good thing. You know, we're having folks that have never even run a report out of their EMRs join ACOs to kind of figure out how to do quality and, and at least start the conversation. Um, and the the again the the track one, MSSP, no downside risk movement has grown. Obviously, as you mentioned, the move to value has really uh, created some anxiety about whether or not that will slow or grow. And I'm wondering about your just general thoughts about if we agree, and that's maybe that's the first question, if we agree that that uh, the movement um, has helped to move the conversation towards quality, um, so that's the one. And the second is, if that's true, then um, are, are we in danger of, of losing some of that momentum? Or, or do you see, are you more optimistic than perhaps I am about, <laughs> about how that's going to go? Um, I think we've talked about this some, some before, and I think I'm probably a little more optimistic, but yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a valid concern. So, um, you know, would definitely agree with your, with your take that, you know, growing the, the number of ACOs or the size of ACOs is a, is a positive thing. I think mm-hmm. um, it's not a silver bullet that on its own yeah, is going to sure, right. you know slow the the cost curve right. um, you know entirely. But um, but I think it's an important tool, and and I think at least so far, at least on the the Medicare side, it's the most effective um, you know delivery system side mm-hmm. cost control that mm-hmm. that exists. So. Um, so far, you know, I hope, yeah. <laughs> I hope yeah, sure. you know, we'll Maybe come up with else, with something yeah. else too. But yeah. um, and it and it probably is a combination of things. But I think it's I think there's value in in growing the number of ACOs and in ensuring that 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 momentum continues. Um, I think the the proposed rule to me, I think is relatively I, I would say is pretty reasonable for existing ACOs. Like I think that ACOs that have had a good amount of experience in downside risk. I, from a with my policy or former policy hat on, mm-hmm. I think it's reasonable f- to um, to encourage people to move to more risk. Yeah. Um, I think there's, you know, responsible ways to do that and, yeah. and ways you want to think about doing that that doesn't, um, you know, particularly for you know, uh, smaller physician-based ACOs that don't have sort of reserves or things like that. I think you have to be careful about how you sure. do that. But right. I, th- I think it's not. Um, I don't know that it's pushing way too fast in that regard. Yeah. Where I think I do share a lot of your concern is is in terms of the um, th- what it might do to slow the growth of new ACOs and the the sort of ramp to downside risk um, for those. So I think yeah. the 
not to get into too much of the details of the rule, but I think the the gradual increase in risk, I think, is a really good thing that you don't have to sort of jump into huge amounts of right. downside losses. Right. But um, I think particularly if you're a, a small organization with not a lot of resources, any amount of downside risk then requires you to get a financial guarantee. Yeah, it has sure. all these sort of upfront costs. Yeah. Um, and I think that combined with um, you know less opportunity for, for upside you know, might make newer groups that are thinking about it say sort of like, yeah, why not. why bother? You know, yeah. like this is too too much for not enough potential gain. Yeah. Um, and that I think think having longer amount of time to sort of figure it out because it, I think that's a big thing that that we've learned, we collectively have learned, is that it, it takes a long time to figure this out, to figure out how to do it well. Right. Um, and I think it's worth giving people that time particularly to encourage new new folks to join who yeah, haven't in the past. Um, right. Because I think as much as I was saying, you know, it's sort of the best the best thing we have so far for controlling costs, it's still um, a pretty small slice of, of the overall Medicare spend. And so, right. um, so a lot of ways need to, to do go. something to, yeah. to get that to a broader uh, broader range of physicians and a broader range of, um, you know, providers nationally. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I appreciate your time, Maria. Thanks for having you know, me. We're, we're glad you're here. You certainly have brought a lot of uh, competency and intelligence to our group and, and this stuff, and we appreciate you helping us navigate through it. So. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, if you anyone listening has other ideas for future podcasts, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Uh, thanks for listening.